Thank you, choir, for that good reminder to be still in God's presence and just know that he is sovereign and that he is God. I sound a little different this morning. I don't have a cold that I'm aware of, but I did yell a lot at my son's basketball game that I'm coaching yesterday, so I think uh, that probably, we're playing in a bigger gym this year, third graders, and I have to yell louder to those children where to be on the court. I'm coaching Jude's third grade basketball team again, so um, y'all bear with me with my little low scratchy voice. Thank you, Dot, for that beautiful uh, welcome this morning. I felt so welcomed, uh, and I am hoping that you will uh, maybe convince some of those men to uh, go out with you. We'll see what happens. (laughs) When I was a child, some of my favorite toys in the whole world were Transformers. I loved Transformers. Anybody else have Transformers when you were a kid? Uh, they were these tiny little metal you know, cars or trucks or planes and you could twist them and contort them until they became robots. And they had a, a cartoon show that I would watch every Saturday morning and the, the theme song for the cartoon show said Transformers more than meets the eye. You remember that? Uh, that, that song, I can still hear it in my head and I'm, I'm singing with my voice like it is today. That's a wonderful thing. But, It's more than meets the eye because to the eye, it appears to be a car, but it's not. It's an alien robot that you can twist and shape into different things. It's an incredible concept, more than meets the eye. So this whole month of January, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John as we are plowing through this year, this incredible gospel message And each passage that we deal with uh, throughout January is going to deal with something that is not what it appears to be on the outside. And my hope and my prayer is that by the end of the month, we'll be able to have a deeper faith and be able to see with the eyes of faith beyond the outward appearance of things into a deeper reality of what actually is happening underneath the surface. So let's stand, if you're able to, this morning in honor of God's word as I read our text for this morning. If we're going to get through John in the next 50 weeks, then we're going to have to take a little bigger chunks at a time. So verses 19 through 34 of chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. John 1, 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose 
I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You teenagers don't laugh too hard when my voice cracks like a 13-year-old, okay? I know that's going to be hilarious, but uh, try to bear with me. We just spent this last month in December in the first chapter of John, which is really the, the first 18 verses of John, which is the prologue to the whole gospel of John. It's a sweeping, majestic view of who Jesus is and what he was sent to do. The first 18 verses of John tell us that Jesus was the pre-existent word of God, the eternal logos by whom all creation was spoken into being, and that he put on flesh and he moved into our neighborhood in order to redeem us and make us children of God. It's a real high-arching overview of what the gospel is all about. Now, in verse 19, it's time to get practical into the earthly experience of Jesus' ministry here among us. And so, like the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John also begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. When I was a kid, I, I believed that John the Baptist was somehow the founder of the Baptist denomination, right? He must have been the original Baptist. My dad worked for what was then the Baptist Sunday School Board. I was a lifelong Baptist, of course, and my parents came both from strong Baptistic families in Texas, where they're from, and uh, so my, my whole life I was a Baptist, so when I heard about John the Baptist, I said, yeah, that's our guy. All right, John the Baptist. <laughs> and then I, I realized when I was a teenager that he wasn't the founder of the Baptist denomination, but, but I liked him for a different reason. He was kind of a rebel like I was in high school. He was kind of a wild guy. John uh, the Baptist wore clothes that I, I'm sure he made himself out of camel hair, and he ate locust and wild honey, which I thought was so cool that he ate bugs, and he lived out in the wilderness I, mean, I just imagine this unruly kind of rebel guy that uh, was drawing these huge crowds to him out in the desert. And we read in the Gospel of Luke that John was actually a relative of Jesus. His mother Elizabeth and Mary were related. And John's dad, Zechariah, was actually a priest. Both of his parents were of the tribe of Levi. And Zechariah was brilliantly played by Brett Mozo. I don't think the Mozos are here today, but in our Christmas play, that was just a, a beautiful portrayal. And he was a, a priest who served in the temple in Jerusalem day after day, carrying out the duties of that office. That figures, right? Because preacher's kids are always a little wild and a little crazy, and that must have been John as a priest kid. But before Jesus began his public ministry on earth, John had already started a ministry out in the desert regions of preaching and baptizing. He wasn't really John the Baptist so much as he was John the Baptizer. And it was revolutionary. He was, again, drawing all these people, all these Jewish people from all over the region of Judea. And, and they were looking for something more 
than just the empty rituals of going through the, the motions at the temple. I'll pay my money. I'll get my dove. I'll put it on the altar. My sins are, are clean. I'm going home. You know, they were sick of going through those motions. And John was really getting to their hearts. John was out in the wilderness talking about getting right before God did something major in their lives. He wasn't telling people, oh, if you repent of your sins and if you're baptized, then you can go to heaven. He wasn't telling people, oh, if you repent and you return to God, then you'll get a, a new car and a bigger house. He wasn't saying if you repent and turn to God that you'll have a happy, wonderful life and your marriage will be great and your kids will be successful. He was preaching the truth, the pure, unadorned truth that something big was going to happen, the biggest thing to ever happen in the world, and people needed to get their hearts right in order to receive it. They needed to turn from sin and despair and, and return to the grace and the light of God. The, the washing of the water was a, a symbol. It was an outward symbol of an inward reality of, of their cleansing of their, their sins so that they could receive the gospel of Jesus. The other gospels tell us that just a few weeks before this encounter that we just read in John 1, Jesus himself was actually baptized by John the Baptist. That's why he said, I didn't know who it was until I saw the dove descend on his head. And the other Gospels say that when Jesus showed up and John the Baptist saw him and Jesus said, John, I want to be baptized by you. John said, no way. Who am I to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. This is the way it needs to be. So John relented. And as he was bringing Jesus up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and did not depart from Jesus. The Holy Spirit showed up in a major way in power on the Messiah. So it's a crazy time in John's world right now where we read in John 1. He's met the Messiah. The Messiah has come to earth and he knows it. So he's preaching nonstop. He's ministering to these huge crowds out in the desert. And all the religious leaders of Jerusalem are in a tizzy. They're, they're freaking out about this movement that's happening out in the wilderness. So they send a, a delegation, a, a fact-finding committee out into the desert to, to see what the truth is, what's happening with this wild, locust-eating man in the desert. And these leaders are part of an oligarchy in Jerusalem. They have carefully constructed a system of government that it's a delicate balance with their Roman overlords who have conquered the region 30 years prior to this and with the other Jewish authorities to maintain a modicum of power and rule and they have a pretty comfortable life set up of control over those who have no power. So they want to keep that intact as much as they possibly can. And as soon as John sees them, he knows why they're there. They think he's the Messiah. So whenever a massive religious movement was happening, everyone wondered, uh-oh, is the Messiah here? Instead of longing for that, they were terrified of the Messiah coming. And since John was the apparent leader of this new movement in the desert, they came to see if it was him. So look at verse 20 again. They ask him, who are you? And he knows what they're thinking. So his first words are like, settle down, okay? I'm not him. I'm not the one, okay? And they say, all right, 
Elijah? Is that who you are? And that's actually a pretty good question because we know from the Old Testament that Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind between the chariots of fire. And Elijah was also a, a wild rebel type. He wore the same kind of clothes that John wore. He lived out in the wilderness. And they even did a lot of the same kind of stuff too. And the very last words of the entire Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it tells us that Elijah would return before the Messiah would come back. It says in, in Malachi 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with an utter, a decree of utter destruction. Nice, happy way to end the Old Testament. So valid question coming from these authorities. Are you Elijah? And John, again, says, nope, I'm not him either. Yes, John was a prophet like Elijah, who looked like Elisha, and even did Elijah-like things, but he was not Elijah reincarnated. He was John the Baptist. He fulfilled an Elijah-like role. Jesus said that. Even in Matthew, Jesus said there was no prophet greater on earth than John the Baptist. You'll see why in a minute. So then they, they ask John, okay then, are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? The prophet was someone who was prophesied way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses tells the people, the Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. I will raise up for a prophet for them, a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. God did indeed send a prophet like Moses, but better than Moses. A new Moses who would lead a people out of captivity in a whole new kind of exodus. A greater exodus where they would be freed from their shackles of sin and death and bondage forever. But John the Baptist was not him. So finally in verse 22, they're, they're, they're stumped and they say, fine. Okay, just tell us, who are you then? Tell us who you are. We got to give an answer back in Jerusalem. Our bosses are breathing down our necks. And John says, I am the voice. He did not say, I am the word. He is the voice. He reached back 700 years into Old Testament prophecy and, and quoted from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through five, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. John 1.14, Jesus showed us the glory of God. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John was not the word, he was the voice. John was not the message, he was the messenger. John was not the source of what he was talking about, he was just the communicator of the source. He basically says, look, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about who's here to prepare the way. I'm, I'm basically a road construction man getting the highway ready for the king to come on it. That's all I'm doing. I'm just a roadside construction man. 
he gets the emphasis off of himself because to make a big deal about John the Baptist is to miss the boat completely. It's not about John. He's not the point. Look at verses 26 and 27 again. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't even know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. What slave gets that job where the master comes home and puts his sandals up and that slave has to untie his shoes and take them off? That's the lowest slave in the house that has to take the master's shoes off. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for this Messiah King who's coming among you. You know, when I was in seminary, it became clear that a lot of us uh, succumb to the temptation of hearing the sound of your own voice and enjoying that. We had a preaching lab at Beeson Divinity School where I went, and it was a, an ellipsis of chairs uh, where your peers would sit with a notepad ready to critique you, and you had your choice of uh, pulpits. We had a traditional pulpit or a modern one with like metal, you know, depending on where you wanted to send your tape to. And they had cameras. They would film it. And you could send out your DVDs to search committees so you get a pastor job, right? And, and people would wear a suit if they were using their traditional pulpit or they'd wear jeans and a button up and spike their hair up if they were, you know, going to a contemporary church, whatever. And, and a lot of us would get so excited about preaching day because it was my big day. It's my day to preach, my day to be in front of the cameras, my day to be the one that all my peers listened to and looked at. I had an older preacher friend who told me that when he was in seminary, at one of our Baptist seminaries, he said that the goal of every student there who wanted to be a preacher was to be the pastor of First Baptist Church in a county seat town. That was the dream. You know what I'm talking about, Richard? The First Baptist Church of whatever county seat town. Because if you were that, you'd probably get a country club membership. Yeah, for witnessing purposes, of course. So they could evangelize on the golf course. I was amazed at the contrast of, of what you see with some of these TV preachers. I know the irony that we're on TV. Uh, I have no desire to be a TV preacher, though. Um, you see the, the difference between the TV preachers and John the Baptist, right? You see the, the humility that John the Baptist always takes the emphasis off of himself and puts it where it needs to be. I was struck by the humility of John Piper. Many of you know the famous preacher, speaker, author, John Piper. Whether you agree with his theology or not, you have to be amazed by the humility of this guy. Um, he's published over 50 books. Many of them are bestsellers. I probably have 15 or 20 on my shelves right now. And yet he doesn't own the copyright to any of them. He has assigned the copyright of all of his books to a charitable organization and therefore he draws zero dollars from the sales of any of his books. And he does that not to brag and say, look how holy I am, I don't make any money off this. He does it because he's scared to death of the love of money and what that can do to someone and how it can wreck someone's life. He's protecting himself. Piper actually came to my seminary. He came to Beeson while I was there as a student and delivered a series of lectures and 
one of the, the cool things that Beeson did was they assigned a student to go to the airport whenever a visiting lecturer or professor came to, to Beeson, and they would let a student go and pick him up at the airport. This was before they had Uber or Lyft or anything, too. And it was cool because a student got to share a car ride with some famous scholars and speakers, and uh, one of my buddies got chosen to go pick up Piper. And he told me that when he picked Piper up, he only had a little carry-on with him, and it was ratty and falling apart. And he, his clothes looked like they just came straight from Walmart racks, and his shoes were all dusty and beat up. And he was just as kind and humble and authentic as anyone you've ever met. And my friend was really struck by his humility, this guy who has influenced so many young preachers and teachers today. It wasn't about himself at all. John the Baptist showed us what a witness to Jesus should look like. It shouldn't point to us. It should only point to the one whose strap we are not worthy to untie. I'll give you a preview for the sermon on March the 2nd. I've already planned out all the text and the titles for the next uh, 11 months. And on March 2nd, the title is taken from John chapter 3 where we see John the Baptist again, and he's continuing to baptize out in the desert. And he says in verse 30 of chapter 3, when it comes to Jesus, he must increase, and I must decrease. I had a friend who's a worship leader and a musician, and he lives in L.A. now, but he, he actually tattooed on his forearms, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm not advocating you go out and get a tattoo that says that, right? But what a great reminder. What a great reminder that it's all about Jesus, that Jesus must increase, and we must learn to relinquish the throne of our own lives, to put Jesus in the proper place of authority and supremacy, and so that we can learn to die to ourselves and experience the freedom that comes from that death. I had a friend, again, who uh, loves this verse so much that another friend who got it tattooed on his side right here, John 3.30, just the reference, to remind him that Jesus must increase in our lives daily as we die to ourselves. Then in verse 29, Jesus shows up again in the wilderness, and all John can do is point, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. That's, that's the essence of the Christian message in one sentence. That was the culmination of God's rescue plan. The lamb that God had been talking about all this time from the very beginning was finally here to take away the sins of the world. Alan Wharton, one of our Bible teachers here in the Logos class on Sunday morning, sent me this great little chart from Arthur Pink, is that right, from the 40s? And it kind of sums up God's plan for the lamb throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 4, when Cain brings his offerings uh, to the Lord of the first fruits of the field, right, his agrarian, you know, offering. And then Abel brings a beautiful lamb. It says, from the firstborn of the flock, he brings this perfect lamb. And the Lord was pleased with Abel's sacrifice of the lamb. Then a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham obeys God and he takes his only son, his beloved Isaac, son of laughter, up the mountain to be sacrificed. And, and poor Isaac looks up to his dad. His dad doesn't explain the plan to him. And, 
in verse 7, he says, Behold the fire and wood, Dad, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then, of course, in the book of Exodus, God's people in slavery in Egypt were told that the worst plague, the death of the firstborn son, would soon come into Egypt. But if they would only smear the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorway of their house, then death would pass right over their home that night. That was the first Passover And then the the lamb as the Messiah was actually prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. Instead of a a warrior king riding in to Jerusalem on a war horse with a sword ready to kick the Romans out and set up Israel as a superpower, as a military power in the world, the Messiah would instead be humble and lowly. In verse 7, Isaiah said, the Messiah was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This sounds like a tragic thing, like a, a sad message of defeat, but it's actually the greatest victory of all time. We see that the gospel message, the good news, is that the debt that we owed because we had been born sinful had been paid in full once and for all. The lamb that was slain for us is not some tragic, pathetic figure, but is now the Lion of Judah, who's ready to come back into our world, roaring to fix everything and make all things new. We see in in Revelation 5 this picture. You know, John, the same John who wrote our gospel text that we're reading all this year in, in 2019, gets a glimpse of heaven at the end of time. And he sees uh, all these heavenly creatures, angels and elders before the throne. And and they're saying, who can open the scroll? Who's worthy to take the plans of God and unfurl them? Who can possibly be worthy to do it? And John weeps because no one was found worthy. But then he sees a lamb. A lamb that was standing, but a lamb that had been slain. And the lamb took the scroll and just broke it open easily. Unfurled all those seven seals without a single drop of sweat because he was worthy. He alone was worthy. And then all the creatures in heaven go crazy and they start singing. They sing a new song, verse 9, Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Remember that the whole Bible is about all nations, tribes, and tongues, the, the, the multicultural, multi-ethnic, racial diversity of heaven is part of the glory of God. Let's not forget that. Verse 10, you've been, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's us. The land that was slain by his blood has made us a kingdom and priest to our God. And they, we, shall reign on the earth. And then a few weeks ago, we were planning out a worship service, and Richard and I were in his office, and Nate Burbank came in, and he'd been at CPA, and he said, guys, guys, I just heard something today that blew my mind. Did you realize why Jesus was born in a stable? 
And of course, I, in my theological training, I said, well, yes, he was lowly and not esteemed, and that's why he was born in a humble manger. You know, and Nate said, no, no, that's not it at all. A stable is where lambs were born. <laughs> the lamb is our eternal message. Past, present, future. History centers on a lamb. God's whole plan of redeeming all things back into himself is based on a lamb. Therefore, knowing the lamb of God changes everything. That's our application for today. One point. Have you beheld the lamb of God? Have you gotten a glimpse of the lamb that was slain and what he's done for you? Have you gazed upon the lamb and, and realized what he has endured on your behalf and responded in endless gratitude and overflowing praise? Knowing the lamb changes everything. Therefore, we must never lose the wonder of the atonement, the mystery of the fact that God himself should provide the perfect lamb to die in our place. When I was in Australia the second time, I was 19 years old, and I was raised in church. I knew about the gospel message, and I'd heard it all my life. And I knew that Jesus died, died for my sins. I'd heard that many times, but I, I think I'd lost the wonder of the atonement as a, you know, cocky 19-year-old who thought I knew everything. And we, we were praying with a group of young adults. They were Chinese. They were all second-generation uh, immigrants to Australia. And their parents were not believers. Their parents were lost and searching, and, and we were praying for their parents. And, and, you know, my parents are Christians, and they're God, godly people. I've never prayed with the kind of desperation that these people were praying with. And we were literally on our knees praying together, and, and one of them just said very simply, God, we thank you for dying for us. For dying for us. And it was something about his authenticity, something about his humility, something about his earnestness that struck me so deep that God would die for me, that it hit me like an arrow through my soul, and I started to weep, and I'm not a crier, and I just started to cry. God died for me, and I was so filled with gratitude and filled with wonder that God should die for me. If we're going to be the kind of people, the kind of church that God has made us to be, we have to behold the Lamb of God and be amazed. We have to not lose the wonder of the atonement. As the great hymn writer Charles Wesley put it many years ago, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night.
How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's pray. Lord God, we can't fathom the profound love that you have for us. Love that would drive a nail into its own hand for our sake. God, I pray that you would pierce our hearts this morning with the the wonder of the atonement. Help us to not get jaded about the gospel. Help us to understand the greatness of the good news that you sent the perfect spotless lamb, the only one worthy, the only one worthy to take the scroll and to open the events that you have planned, the only one worthy to to become the incarnate word of God and show your perfect grace and truth to us, the only one worthy to take the punishment upon his shoulders, the sins of the world upon himself, and to nail them to a tree, never more to wreak havoc on the world again. God, we pray that we would live into that mystery more fully in 2019. Help us to be so moved by the atonement that we would respond with overflowing gratitude and praise, that we would be so filled with amazement at what you've done for us that we couldn't help but live radical lives of grace reflected to others. If you have poured out yourself for us, who are we to withhold anything from someone else? May that overwhelming grace show us that you are the firm foundation on which we can always stand amidst the troubles of this world, knowing that you are going to come back as the lion ready to roar. We love you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb. Amen. We're going to sing on Christ the solid rock this morning as we have a time of invitation. If, if you realize you've been jaded about the gospel, if you haven't really experienced the wonder of the atonement in a while, I would just ask you to pray where you are that God would renew that fire in you, that the Holy Spirit would be rekindled in your heart. This church is not going to move forward in the way that God would have us to go if we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to be able to show grace to others and execute justice on behalf of the poor and the marginalized if we're not empowered and fueled by the Holy Spirit. And that comes through the wonder of the atonement. That's where we recover that amazement and gratitude and are enabled to go out in power and minister to others effectively. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you want to pray with somebody, Trey, if you'll just come stand here. Uh, Jan Bennett back. I think she's back. Yeah, Jan, if you'll come stand here. If you want to pray with Jan or Trey, they're going to be here. If you want to pray with me, I'll be here too. If you just want to come kneel at the altar and thank God for the atonement, it'll be open as well. Whatever you need to do during this time, let's stand and uh, have a time of invitation.